the bigger picture. Going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. Joining me today for the bigger picture is political commentator uh, Mike Indian, author of the Gratio Tendency blog. Um, Mike, it's extraordinary. I, I can remember you know, long before COVID, when we had weeks where we were wondering what on earth we'd talk about. That doesn't seem to be a problem at the moment. I was reading today a commentator who um, earlier, I think, had been quite a supporter of the current um, uh, administration. Uh, he used the phrase, an overpowering founder regime stench emanating from Downing Street. So then we probably do have to start um, with this. Summarise where on earth we are and whether indeed you think it is the founder regime. Well, I've got to start off by actually um, saying congratulations to the Prime Minister and Carrie Johnson. They've just announced the day we're recording this, the birth of their second child. So are you sure we... that you're sure that wasn't announced just to try and divert I, attention? I, I, I could have. Honestly, it's not going to divert us. We've, we've got the nice bit out of the way. So there is an aura around this Downing Street, a, a, a perception that has pervaded it since Boris Johnson became Prime Minister two and a half years ago, that it does not follow the rules. And... We've seen this running through from cabinet ministers hanging on despite incredible levels of scandal that would have necessitated resignations for far less. We've seen Dominic Cummings is in you know bizarre press conference about Barnard Castle, and we see the twists and turns of the different COVID press conferences. But I think this particular episode that we're referring to, which is the leaked video of a uh, rehearsed that never was televised press conference from Downing Street with the Prime Minister's then press secretary, Allegra Stratton, a former journalist uh, who is married to the spectators, James Forsyth, part of that sort of inner sort of Tory mm. cabal, if you will, joking about a party that she didn't attend, but is Downing Street alleges never to have happened. And they are saying this party that took place 12 months ago, whether it was a gathering or some sort, was basically in contravention of the rules at the time. Mm. And the frivolity with which the issue appeared to be handled has understandably put many people's backs up. We've had a very tearful, and I have to say, very welcome uh, contrition in the resignation from Miss Stratton. And I, I think in honesty, in all this, she's another victim that the Prime Minister has thrown under the bus. And if you were one of Boris Johnson's inner circle yesterday, watching the Prime Minister try to defend this in Prime Minister's questions, the evasiveness, the lack of sheer uh, ability to hold his hands and admit the party had taken place, he wasn't there, it has to be said, or to say, no, I stand by my staff. Essentially, he walked a tightrope of the worst of both worlds. He threw his staff metaphorically under the bus and later he was paying tribute to a Lego Stratton, but he also did not confirm or deny whether these gatherings took place and whether or not they breached the rules. The single most bonkers thing in all of this is that the man he's asked to review this, the Cabinet Secretary Simon Case, who was installed under Mr. Jack Johnson's mm -hmm. uh, last year, replacing uh, Sir Mark Sedwell, may have been at one of the gatherings he's been asked to investigate himself. Seriously, I hadn't seen that. There, there are, there, there have been, it's just a rumour circulating around, there's no proof for it, but we don't know who was at these gatherings and who weren't. There have been allegations from the Prime Minister's former Chief Advisor, Dominic Cummings, that there were journalists at these gatherings, which is why the story has remained so-called buried for so long. I'd argue it's been released in, our, in, 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 in perfect timing to show up the government for introducing further COVID restrictions. But there are now three government staff parties that are due to be investigated 
by the cabinet secretary Simon Case at the moment as of today and these parties took place on the 27th and 18th of December and there was also a gathering in the education department on the 10th of December as well. Extraordinary. Now we're going to have to talk about new COVID rules, but I feel we should leave those until later. But obviously, we'll have to talk about you know whether what's been going on might actually undermine whether people stick to the rules this time, whether they were announced to try and divert a- attention. So we'll come back to that though, because you also want to talk about um, uh, fines about the refurbishment of the Downing Street flat. I mean, that sort of just goes with the whole tenor, doesn't it? You're talking about this sort of aura of rule breaking or or just thinking the rules don't apply to us. They're only for the little people, which, of course, is is one of the one of the things that was so damning about the Dominic Cummings um, uh, episode, wasn't it? That thought yes. that we're being told we have to behave one way. And, and then, of course, when Matt Hancock ignoring the rules that he had helped to devise. We saw Matt Hancock this week on the This Morning Sofa with Philip Schofield and Holly Willoughby, which many people might think is not the most uncomfortable interrogation that he's ever undergone. Hmm. But he was, he, de- he demonstrated again, I have to be said, genuine contrition that he had shown a failure of leadership in the footage that had shown him breaching social distancing rules with an aide of his in his ministerial office. The sheer amount of political capital that this prime minister particularly has wasted on trying to avoid scrutiny avoid issues around this and only to have him sacrifice people at the last minute Owen Patterson Dominic Cummings Allegra Stratton there is a pattern here I'm not for one minute saying that all these people are equally meritous of Mm. being saved or protected Owen Patterson certainly wasn't Dominic Cummings clearly broke the rules and has, I think, arguably carved out quite a nice niche since then, pointing out the various flaws in Downing Street. Allegra Stratton, I think, is a little bit of a different case because she was caught in a seemingly off-the-camera moment, and there's not enough focus been put on uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg's remarks where he was laughing about a Christmas party being recorded. But it shows, A, a lack of awareness from the Prime Minister, mm. the fact that his government went from a net popular rating in the spring of 2020 to his personal ratings being poor even among members of his own party now and to add on top of this there's been the scandal I suspect all along will probably do for Mr Johnson in the end which has been this refurbishment of the Downing Street fact that was uh, paid for from a donation by the Conservative peer Lord Brownlow. £52,000 given for work to the flat in the form of a loan to Mr Johnson from the Conservative Party that he's alleged to have paid back, but it's in clear breach of failing to accurately report a donation to the Electoral Commission House today, fine the Conservative Party nearly £18,000 for that. Yeah, um, quite quite extraordinary. Um, Certainly for much of last year, even as COVID bit and the regulations became ever tighter, the the Prime Minister's popularity still seemed to hold, possibly because of of that. But there's been a poll saying that a a majority of people in the country now think that he should resign. And that apparently includes 33% of those who voted Conservative in 2019. So are we seeing the beginning of the end? I can't really believe that a Prime Minister is going to be kicked out because of refurbishment on the Downing Street flat. I would imagine that you know, many people might shrug their shoulders, but it's everything taken together, isn't it? I mean, you think of so many cases where one thing has been said, then there's been a reverse. It, it seems as if he has no positions he wants to adhere to, unless they're ones he, he thinks people want to hear. Yes, and just looking at Conservative Home this morning, Paul Goodman's written, uh, this is the website that arguably most people should follow when there's a Tory government in office because the most important constituency between elections are the 
365 Conservative MPs. He has a vote of no confidence, Mr Johnson, has suddenly, in the words of Mr Goodman, become more likely than not. Now, the reason that Mr Johnson has been able to get away with so much to now, and let's, let's, let's put it frankly, get away with his putting it lightly mm. here, I've spoken before about how I think he treats the, the country, our, our system of government, our parliament, uh, the voters even who returned him with a degree of contempt, is because Mr Johnson is perceived to be an election winner. The moment that poll lead evaporates, even if it's down to a level pegging level against an opposition Labour Party that has lost four elections in a row and is showing no signs of that Blairite resurgence. I don't mean Blairites from the right wing of the Labour Party, mm. I mean that sort of renaissance that happened under Kinnock, Smith and Blair in the late 80s and early 90s. If the moment Mr Johnson is perceived not to be an election winner, the Conservative Party will get rid of him. That's the same reason Theresa May lasted as long as she did. That's the reason David Cameron hung on, even despite dealing with his party over Europe. And don't forget, there are a whole host of other policy issues you've referenced. There have been so many U-turns, for example. The planning reforms that have proven to be so contentious have now been shelved because the Conservative Parliamentary Party did not like them. We've seen the former Prime Minister Theresa May standing up in the Commons again and again to criticise her successor, mm. Mr Johnson's predecessors, regardless of political persuasion, have shown a degree of contempt for him as well in office. And I'm not saying that Boris Johnson aches for the approval of John Major, David Cameron, least of all Tony Blair or mm. uh, Gordon Brown. But there is an interesting problem now facing the Conservative Party as well. And whilst Paul Goodman says he's not in favour of regicide, he also admits that Mr Johnson will have upset many of the people on his own back benches. There are many MPs who don't forget that sort of that majority of 77, 77 to 80 seats comes from Tory MPs who are elected on very slim majorities in seats that have been Labour for generations. Now, they'd be very conscious that they will lose that position if the Prime Minister's poll writing slip. And at the moment, if we translated the polls, crudely speaking, into a House of Commons result, looking at MRP polls or electoral calculus, we'd be heading for a hung parliament at the moment with Labour just about being the largest party. The Tories would lose that majority of seats that they won at the last election. Effectively, Mr Johnson's antics have undone at the moment, at this point in time, all of the good work that he did in the run-up to 2019 to put his party... I mean, to lose a majority of, of 80 seats is pretty... Extraordinary. Uh, let us pause for breath, uh, Mike, and then uh, have a further look at this story. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian, author of the Gracho Tendency blog. Um, and we're looking at the extraordinary way in which the Conservatives have uh, managed to throw away their, their lead in the polls. I mean, one of the problems, I suppose, for the, um, uh, for the Conservatives has been not a problem. Actually, one of the gains for the Conservatives has been the fact that the Labour opposition has been so... Um, week. I mean, since we last spoke, uh, Labour has gone through a, a reshuffle. Will that make any difference to its um, uh, electoral uh, popularity, do you think? I think one of the things that we have to remember is that the Labour Party's position at the moment has been largely a result 
of its own internecine warfare, its own mm. attacks on itself, beginning in 2010 when it was undermining its 13 years of government, 13 actually very successful years of government by and large, allowing myths like the, uh, the Conservative parties under George Osborne and David Cameron to perpetuate myths about the financial crisis being a result of profligate government spending. The reshuffle, however, is now starting to realise that Labour hasn't managed to entirely drive out the vestiges of talent from a parliamentary Labour party, albeit that it's shrunken down to 200 MPs. I still argue that Labour's chances of being in government still depend largely on Keir Starmer putting forward a different dynamicism or a, or a, a contrast to Boris Johnson. And all opposition leaders have to do is seem to be in control. Remember, all they have is words. They have perception on their side as well. There isn't a question about policies here. Labour could pledge as much as it likes to left-wing pet projects like nationalising broadband or the Green New Deal. Mm. We've seen that in 2019. It doesn't work unless people believe that the party is credible. And bringing people like Yvette Cooper back into the shadow cabinet is a very smart move indeed. And you've got a top team around Keir Starmer now with David Lammy as shadow foreign secretary. Yvette Cooper is Shadow Home Secretary and Rachel Reeves is Shadow Chancellor, who you could actually see being very effective operators, both in opposition, but also in face of Ms. Cooper, inside government as well. As things sound at the moment, we aren't going to get election for a, a while, doesn't matter what the polls um, say. Um, so presumably a great deal is down to Boris's popularity within the party. We've even had the head of the Conservatives in Scotland um, criticising criticizing him which is something i perhaps i wouldn't have expected to see so what's it gonna need i mean we've had gaff after gaff u-turn after u-turn um you know appalling mistakes in frankly insults to the to the public galore what will it take though for the conservatives to decide that it is time for boris to go i don't imagine he he's not doesn't seem the sort of person who would go voluntarily do you he think wouldn't but I think we have to remember, let's look at the, the context in which Conservative leaders have left office previously. So it, in, in, the in the case of, say, starting with Edward Heath, he was forced out by the Conservative Parliamentary Party after losing a leadership contest. But Margaret Thatcher, crucially, although she won three very big elections, she was gone after her third election victory with a 102-seat majority three years later because the party perceived her to be a liability and it was one thing after another she was perceived by her critics in the party to be at risk of keeping the conservatives in power because let's face it is where they're used to being after throughout most of their hmm. history as well we're only comparatively used to the conservative party being losers recently because of tony blair and actually arguably the party's shown its tenacity in terms of maintaining power but don't forget we're 13 years nearly now into this conservative government now 12 13 years now into this conservative government we are now looking at potentially the third change of leadership to have happened in that time we've already had three prime ministers this isn't mrs thatcher dominating the period even then in the latter period john major had incredible trouble with his party. Theresa May had two votes of no confidence in her as well, as well as numerous ones in the House of Commons held, and she wasn't safe in that time. So if, if Boris Johnson enters that territory, there could be a problem. The issue is that there is no obvious successor at the moment. But if we look, oh, it's going to be my next question. Yes, yeah. okay. If we look at the behaviour of senior cabinet ministers, the Chancellor's been touted again and again and again. The name that keeps coming up to me when I talk to Tory party activists, friends of mine, is Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary. I personally think Liz Truss would be a complete disaster as Prime Minister. I'm thinking back to her tenure as Environment Secretary in that infamous pork market speech, the 2014 Tory party conference, but she's very popular with the 
conservative grassroots but at the end of the day it all comes down to how MPs are perceiving him as well and if there was a vote of no confidence and even say as many as 50 bearing on the COVID recovery group of MPs who are consistently opposing the uh, government's regulations and were not happy for example about the new COVID rules being implemented the way they have been this is working from home COVID certification and other measures being brought back in as well including expanded mask wearing includes Sir Graham Brady, who's the chair of the 1922 committee, who is a, an assiduous backbench operator and knows how to outlast conservative leaders in office. Um, you talk about Liz Truss being very popular with the grassroots, but the Conservatives already had one leader who's been staggeringly popular with the grassroots. Uh, that doesn't necessarily lead to an effective government. So you think it, it's a toss up between Liz Truss and the Chancellor? I think the Chancellor is probably the one who feels he should have it, but I think Liz Truss is the one who would win the popularity contest as well. We have to remember that there would be any number of people seeking to throw their hats into the ring at this particular point in time. We haven't even mentioned Jeremy Hunt yet. He's clearly on manoeuvres. He clearly feels his time could come again as well by being outside of the cabinet. Don't forget, he has got the benefit of a large amount of ministerial experience behind him as well. On his way to the top, Boris Johnson stepped on a lot of people to get there. And the lesson, this is what will prove to be his undoing as well, Simon, is that he has no loyalty to those around him, except perhaps his wife. And even then he has a history of having affairs. If you work with Boris Johnson and you support him, whether you're a parliamentary colleague, a political advisor or a Tory party activist or a voter, he has no history of standing by you and delivering what he promises. Mm. That will be his undoing. Well, um, fascinating. My story, obviously, is going to run and run and run. Um, it does seem just utterly bizarre just how incompetent a, um, an administration can be at times. Very dispiriting, apart from anything else, when we are still, so we're being told, in the midst of a national emergency. Uh, time, perhaps, though, for us to change. We need to talk about that. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Chair Radio. I'm in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian. So, Mike, we, I think we managed one or two conversations, which COVID didn't actually monopolise everything. But we are back there with the new uh, variant, uh, Omicron. Um, we don't yet know how serious it is, but the government is presumably just trying to be as cautious as possible and has brought in some new rules, which many people, I suppose, having lost faith in government completely, are sort of saying were, were announced simply to try and take attention away from Partygate. Is that unduly cynical or do you think there may be some basis of truth in that? I think the timing of the announcement is certainly unfortunate because on the face of it, the officials behind the scenes clearly feel that there is some form of risk posed by the Omicron uh, variant. The a polling from YouGov has shown that the public's attitudes to uh, uh, COVID restrictions have remained largely unchanged. Most adults are opposed to a reintroduction of strict lockdown rules, but would support a return to social distancing, which I think is arguably a fair line to walk. So say, for example, at the, at the, at the close end of the spectrum, only 23% would support closing pubs and restaurants, 68% support keeping them open. Mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, then we have majority support for opposing uh, people not being restrictions for meeting indoors, people only having to leave their home again, uh, people only being allowed to meet in groups of six. But then we, when we get to the, the tipping point is large events and people being out, being able to meet in groups of uh, meet outdoors or indoors in groups of more than six. And for things like returns, the, the things the government could realistically bring in and not be controversial would be two meters social distancing, social distancing in pubs and restaurants and restrictions on group sizes. What I don't think we're going to see at the moment, and I stress this is a um, this is a, a purely speculative, mm. is return to a lockdown the likes of which we saw last Christmas. What we have had in the last week and a half is two sets of restrictions reintroduced. Firstly, internationally focused with mask wearing coming back. Secondly, the work from home guidance is back in effect as well, which will be a big blow to many businesses, particularly in the hospitality sector, as plenty of people I know are cancelling their Christmas parties unnecessarily at this point in time, I should stress, because we don't yet know how dangerous the Omicron variant mm -hmm. is. There isn't any evidence to back that up. I understand the government being cautious and the need to protect, but at the moment, they also have to consider where they are politically as well, because they have burned through so much credibility on this as well. This isn't uh, March 2020 again, where people were willing to rally around for a, a few weeks, a few months even, to get things through. This would be the fourth lockdown attempt or the fourth attempt at tightening restrictions as well. The country has bounced back reasonably well, I would argue, but there are still studies showing thousands of unreported deaths from cancer. There are still people adjusting to life outside lockdown as well. And then there is this question of whether or not the government's line about there being a credible risk to the NHS is something that we can believe. Because the NHS last time, we have vaccines now that have proven to be effective. Pfizer and Moderna both say that three doses of their vaccine is effective at neutralising the Omicron variant as well. So surely the best thing for the government to do is just to double down on the booster programme and maybe even consider mandatory vaccines for certain people who haven't had it as well. Uh, why are we still worrying about the NHS nearly two years into a pandemic when, as you say, we've got mass vaccination, there are antivirals, they now, it is no longer a, a, a mystery um, virus. We've got record waiting lists, as you say, lots of um, uh, surpluses happening because of the lockdown rules, people not either not being able to to get into the system to get uh, checked out or perhaps deciding they don't they don't want to or they're they're they feel they're doing something honourable by not putting any pressure on the on the NHS. But doesn't it seem pretty extraordinary, two years on, with lots of extra money, that we're still having the same conversation we had back in March last year? It does, and I think we had, it has to be said that people's patience may be wearing a bit thin in this regard. Now, I don't think many people would dispute the fact that it's important to protect people from an illness that could be fatal. We don't, we're not suggesting having a society here where we are allowing illnesses to run unchecked and for the most vulnerable to be um, ex exposed to that. What we have to be frank about, though, is that we have a high degree of vaccinated people in this country. It's about 70% of the adult population now has had vaccines. Many people, there have been 21 million booster vaccinations delivered. And by and large, if you look at the data, yes, cases are rising, but hospitalisation and death numbers remain much, yes. much much lower than the first and second waves of the Delta variant, for example. And yes, of course, you can say that 
that could tick up. And of course it could. We could have a variant of the virus that isn't dealt with by the vaccines as well. But at the moment, we haven't seen that with Omicron. And we have to be reminded that with a high degree of vaccinated population, there comes with that, I argue, a responsibility for people to get on and live their lives as normally as possible. The people that argue this in Parliament tend to do it from a slightly self-centred freedom, you can't impinge on my liberties or Charles Walker's pint of milk argument. Actually, what we have to think about is the functioning of us as, as, as an entire body, as, as well as individuals as well. There will be people who will be more heavily penalised by lockdown measures than there will be for people being benefited. And I'd argue we've passed the tipping point now where the cost benefit analysis allows people to say, yes, we can prioritise saving lives, but this has to come at the cost of everything else. I think we're past that now, Simon. But, but that is the extraordinary thing is we haven't had any cost benefits analyses, no. have we? Who's, no. who's done one? Even when, when MPs started looking at what's happening in COVID, they didn't go ask for a cost-benefit analysis. It's, it's quite extraordinary. Uh, and also, the first and the second vaccines, everybody was full of admiration about how successful that programme was. That's not the impression I'm getting from the, from the booster programme at all. A lot of people seem to be complaining they can't, they can't get it, or having got it, they're then being asked again and again and again to go because records are showing they, they don't have it. And as People have pointed out reading um, letters in the paper. You know, if if the system is showing they haven't had the booster, how how effective are the figures that we're seeing? And also, we have to remember that the introduction of the COVID pass from next week into nightclubs and venues mm. is something that is, if if the records aren't up to date, that's going to prove deeply problematic as well. Now, there are certain things like mask wearing in public venues like cinemas and theatres which mm. I think people can tolerate I personally have never found mask wearing to be a great imposition on one's freedom and I think it, it's something that actually if it makes people feel better about being out in public and gives them the confidence to be out it's a small trade-off to make mm. guidance and working from home again for people who in white collar jobs it's not going to be a massive inconvenience but there will be people who work alone will find that difficult but then again let's think about the service industry as well, the UK economy has been able to recover strongly from this, but we are not out of the woods on this yet. And we have again and again seen the government trying to walk this fine line, but they make these decisions on very much last minute whims as well. And it's the Prime Minister's flip flopping on these issues. It all depends on who has a word with him at a particular point mm. in time, it seems, whether it's Chris Whitty, who understandably will come in with the facts and the data, or Conservative Chief Whip will walk in and say, do you know what, there are about 40 backbenchers here who won't wear this as well. But as long as Labour continues to back the restrictions, uh, then they will continue to go through. What I don't want to see happen, and I know a lot of people are concerned about, is that this becomes a normal way of life for us now. Yes, I think we have to accept that even the Prime Minister said this yesterday, and I urge him to take a stronger line on this as well, that non-pharmaceutical interventions, specifically restrictions on social distancing, contact, and the way that we all live our lives are not going to be effective in the long term. He needs to show more gumption in that. He needs to put more, that, if that means mandating booster vaccines for everyone and investing in, the, in, in accurate record keeping, then so be it. I think there are arguably certain trade-offs that we can make here, but the Conservatives line that mandatory vaccination is unethical and wouldn't work does seem to be slightly silly in my mind, given the fact that it's clearly the route out of this for all of us. What, so you'd be in favour of mandatory vaccination? Because that was what I was going to ask. So the Prime Minister said that they need to be looking at it. We, we should be thankful, perhaps, that, that we're not uh, going down the route that some European countries have got down, where things are much more severe than they are here, though one can't rule it out. Um, 
but I, I'd sort of assume that that most people would think that mandatory vaccination uh, compelling people to have a vaccine, particularly one that's relatively new, might be something that's almost beyond the pale. It might be, but get bear in mind that we've had in the last few years, and I say this is just to compare the options that are on the table rather advocating for one option or the mm. other here. Realistically, we have to live with COVID now as part of everyday life. We have been living with it with everyday life for the last nearly two years. Yeah. yeah. What we can't be doing is having periodic shutdowns of society every time a new variant of the virus comes out. The COVID vaccine has to be taken up as well. And arguably, it, it seems to me that it is slightly strange that the government it feels quite happy to curtail some freedoms, but is, is, isn't willing to contemplate implementing a mandatory vaccine. I would say that, for example, having elements like in Germany where unvaccinated have been shut out of large elements of public life or New Zealand shutting their borders are arguably more concerning than simply saying to people, look, we recognise that this is difficult, but we really need you to make sure that we're vaccinated so we can all be out there and reduce transmission. But, but there's a proportion of the public that can't actually have the vaccines anyway. Absolutely, we're, yeah. we're, we're not far off hitting that, that limit. No, and, and I think to be fair, this is why I think that it wouldn't necessarily be such a controversial move to contemplate mandatory vaccines because we've had a high degree of voluntary take-up in it as well. If you think about it, children are inoculated against measles, mumps and rubella. They don't tend to get a say in that matter. The parents decide for them. What we have to contemplate is that on balance, compared to the other elements out there, are we prepared to live in a situation where we can give the government continuing ability to shut society down or even worse, continue in this perpetual state of Schrodinger's cat scenario, mm. almost, where we don't know what's going to be happening one week to the next. It's going to affect everything from day-to-day -day lives to long-term play. And it, I appreciate it's very easy to sit there and say this when I'm sitting in my comfy flat in Walthamstow. And people might say, but I, I remember, I was somebody who was clinically vulnerable mm. for the vaccine. I did have the anxiety initially of the virus. But I do also agree that if it was a proven and effective vaccine regime, it is incumbent upon all of us, policymakers, right away down to individuals, to ensure the maximum possible uptake of that vaccine. So there is no excuse for policymakers to pinball between imposing restrictions at short notice and then trying to open up society and playing this sort of crude guessing game with yes. pharmaceutical interventions. Yes, I'm, yes, I'm not sure I necessarily would, would agree. You make a good argument. But I also worry that if so many people are saying they can't get the booster when it's voluntary, would it actually work if it was made mandatory? Can we even imagine that it's necessarily going to happen? Anyway, Mike, sadly, we are out of time, um, as ever, of course. Far more to say than we have time for. But my thanks to Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.